0: In here and we all know it. hi everybody i'm peter jacobson and welcome to jake's takes yeah, 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 yeah. well golf is back and isn't it great to see i had a wonderful time watching the TaylorMade driving relief match with matthew wolf ricky fowler dustin johnson and rory mcelroy over this past weekend It was incredible to watch Seminole. Seminole Golf Club has never been on television before. And I know some of the comments, people were mentioning that it was odd to see golf without golf fans. I I agree. Guys would make birdies or hit huge drives. And there was nothing. We're used to hearing roars and seeing guys give high fives and, and all that. But there were no caddies, really no yardage books, no greens books. Players were carrying their own bag, which I thought was really cool to see. Took me back. Uh, the winners were Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy. I think they won almost two million bucks for charity. And Matthew Wolf and Ricky Fowler, just about a million and a quarter, something like that. Overall, the event raised more than $5 million in relief of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the essential workers. I think it was the CDC Foundation and the a National Nurses Foundation, if I have that right. It didn't really matter who won. There were no losers. Just a ton of money was raised. And I think it was an awesome display. Coming up this week on the podcast, I'm so excited to be joined by my good friend Jim Furyk. Clearly, a Hall of Fame career in the works. One thing I didn't realize about Jim Furick is he's so close to a career Grand Slam. He has the win at the U.S. Open, but he has a second in the PGA a fourth in the Masters, and a fourth in the Open. Now, some of you may say that's not really that close, but if you play that high level of golf, you realize how close that really is. But he's a great guy. He just turned 50. This is our 50th episode on Jake's Takes, and I thought it would be appropriate for Jim, who just turned 50. So I hope you enjoy Jim Furick because we had a great conversation. It's a we all know it. The fans are fired up and making sure they show it. The ratty loud, not your usual crowd. It's a jungle in here. People ask me all the time now when I play in an outing or a tournament or just with friends, why do I play a yellow ball? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Because I can see it. I can see the ball in flight all the way from the tee down to the landing spot, whether that's the fairway or, yeah, a fairway bunker. At my age now, I lose the white ball in flight. When Srixon first started making the Z-Star yellow ball and they put it in my locker, it was to hand out to my amateur partners in the Pro-Am. And I was thinking, I'm not going to play this ball. I'm going to play the white ball. But when they put it in play, I could see their ball. And I immediately thought, what in the heck? I could see that ball, and believe me, when you lose sight of the ball in flight and you don't know where it lands, it kind of takes a little bit of the fun away. So what I did right then, I switched to the yellow ball. I started playing it in the pro-ams, and eventually I started playing it in the tournament. Whenever you switch to a new ball, you're always worried about how that ball is going to fit in with what you do, how it affects your game, and I play it because it does everything I need it to do. I always think about proper spin, the proper trajectory, and the maneuverability of the shot. With the Strixon Z-Star yellow ball, I can curve it left or right, hit it high or low, and it has that perfect amount of spin that I need for my game. It's been about 10 years now since I put that ball in play and I've never looked back. It's yellow for me for the rest of my career. First of all, let
1: me thank you for joining us this week on the podcast, and happy 50th birthday, which you celebrated last week on Tuesday. It doesn't feel much different than 25 or 30 or 40, does it? Time marches off. it.
2: I think it kind of does, but yeah, it keeps marching on for sure. I keep (laughs) trying to figure out how in the heck I got to 50. It doesn't seem like that long ago I was a rookie and playing with you on tour.
1: Yeah, that's a funny story. Tell uh, when you were in when you were awarded the Payne Stewart Award. You told a funny story about playing with me, and then that same thing happened to you playing with Justin Thomas. Tell everybody that story real quick.
2: Yeah, I always thought you know when I was young on tour, and you get paired with Payne Stewart or Peter Jacobson or you know Corey Pavin, someone that you know had an established career and multiple winner on tour. You kind of got excited, right? You you know kind of want to see how your game stacks up and Luff was on the bag, and I got paired with you in Phoenix uh, somewhere on the weekend, maybe maybe uh, Saturday or Sunday. And uh, I remember walking up a fairway and trying to strike up a conversation and saying, you know, hey, Jake, how long you know, how long have you been on tour? You said, 18 years. And it just, like, caught me. Like, you know, you're, you're a rookie on tour. You're trying to figure out if, if you're good enough to, to stay out there, if you could have a long career. And I thought, oh, my God, 18 years. I mean, that's forever. And I was like, how old is this guy? Like, you know. <laughs> Back then, I started trying to do the, do, you know, do the math. Like, well, he probably got out here when he was, you know, twenty-three or twenty-four, and he's probably, on you know, forty-one or forty-two. And I'm like, wow, he's old. Uh, and now, you know, I'm I'm on tour, and it's funny how I play with a young guy, and almost every round I play with someone young, they say, "How long have you been on tour?" And it makes me laugh because I'm like, I know exactly what this kid's thinking. Like, my God, he is so old. So it uh, it comes back to haunt you for sure. But uh, well.
1: <laughs> that's and even worse. Thing.
2: Fluff's on my bag now. I mean, think about how old he is. For goodness' sake.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Think about fluff. Uh, he started with me early on in the uh, in the the seventies and eighties, and then he went to work. Then he went obviously through the nineties, and then he went to Tiger. Caddied for Tiger for a couple of years, and now he's been with you what probably probably close to twenty years. Twenty one.
2: Wow, on. April was 21 years. So we started in uh, in '99,
1: Masters in '99. I, I say this a lot when people ask me about my relationship with Fluff, which is as strong as it is uh, strong as it is today as it was back then. People always say, "How in the world does he go from three through three distinctively different personalities, Peter Jacobson, Tiger Woods, and Jim Furyk?" And I give credit to Fluff because. I think Fluff really understands each player that he works for and tries to focus in on what you need. Do you do you find that to be the case with Fluff? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I I don't think there's a caddy out there that could caddy for anyone, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's there's always an ebb and flow in a relationship and getting along with folks. But yeah, I think I think a good caddy has to adjust, you know, a little bit of his style to what he believes you know, that player wants to hear, needs to hear. You know, good. He tells he tells a lot of stories about caddying for you, and times where if you needed a kick in the rear end, he might you know he might challenge you a little bit, or you know sometimes you just needed an arm around you to to calm you down and and get you going. And I think you know he's he's good at kind of reading that reading those personalities, and and he got to know all of us uh, very very well. And I think you know what what makes us tick and
1: what what makes us play better.
0: Well, you've clearly had a
1: Hall of Fame career, seventeen tour wins, one major, which came at the U.S. Open. In 2003, you've you've had incredible consistency. You uh, played in nine Ryder Cups, uh, seven Presidents Cups. Actually, you qualified for eight, but you were injured and you had to you had to skip one. Uh, interesting. I want to get your opinion. I was on two losing Ryder Cup teams, and you've been on a few yourself in this era where the United States has really struggled in the Ryder Cup. What? Uh, and you were captain in eighteen, two thousand eighteen, in France. What do you think? Uh, I know we've all tried to put our finger on it, but what do you think the Europeans do differently uh, in the Euro- in the Ryder Cup, which which makes them so successful?
2: Uh, I've heard a lot of theories, and I think if uh, you know, I, th- I think if it was that easy to pinpoint, uh, we'd be doing those same <laughs> things, right, <laughs> on the American side. I think one of the things I will say that uh first of all hats off to them i, I think the european tours you know you look back from uh the 1930s to the 1970s and europe rarely if ever won a Ryder cup and it was a very lopsided match the european tour was kind of the little brother to the pga tour and you know i, th- I think they've always had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder right that uh you know, Sevy kind of came over and you had that Seve, Bernhard Longer, Sandy Lyle, Ian Woosnam, Mick Faldo, you know, all at one time, number one players in the world. And that era, that group of guys kind of changed the Ryder Cup for, forever. And, and they were the little brother that wanted to come over and, you know, and kind of beat up on their big brother. One of the things Europe's done really well, in my opinion, is picking their venues and their locations. Especially, you know, for for obviously for home matches. So you look at, you look at, you know, the Belfry and they had a a European tour event there. And you, no matter where we've played in the last 20 years, they've had uh, a European tour event. Their players are, you know, very knowledgeable on the golf course. And the Americans don't know the golf course very well, right? We go over there, we play it, you know, probably two practice rounds and we tee it up. And uh, so we're giving up a bunch right off the bat. On the road, and um, I don't think we've done as good a job as picking our venues. We pick great golf courses, we pick places where the fans are incredible, but we have we don't really have an advantage per se on the golf courses that we choose here. It's a little bit more of a fifty fifty, mm-hmm. and I think that's a big deal. When we went to Paris, uh, I think they had two hundred eighty rounds as a team around the golf course, and I believe we had eight. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, it was clear that uh, they knew that course I think, I think more than we did. In-
2: Right, and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe they're superstars. You know, maybe uh, Henrik Stenson didn't play the French Open a lot, but Molinari did and Fleetwood did and uh, you know, a bunch of guys that played uh, that course a lot. I, you know, Justin Thomas had a great Ryder Cup, and he went over and played the, the French Open uh, that summer. So he knew the golf course and was trying to help the guys with what to expect as well. So uh, th- that's one thing, I, but, but we've been outplayed. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them their credit you know, and make no excuses. We've gotten outplayed they've been better in crucial moments. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we talk about. I mean, I've been on that Ryder Cup committee and I've been a captain and a player. It's something we talk about as players quite often of, of how we're going to improve. And the one thing we really need to do, uh, you know, we've had a, a pretty much a 50, 50 at home, but we're really getting our tails kicked uh, on the road and we, uh, we need to start winning in Europe, just like Europe needed to start winning in the United States in the 80s and did it at, at Muirfield for the first time. We need to turn that, Uh, around a little bit and start winning in Europe and I think the next opportunity to do that will be in Italy and you know what they still had not had a European tour event at that golf course it was slow to be built Uh, I think they got behind and and uh, they'll have very little rounds around that golf course comparatively to what they've had in the past so I think it gives us a good opportunity uh, as a U.S. team to go over there and uh, and hopefully
1: uh, start setting the trend there in Italy Well, you talk about venues and the upcoming Ryder Cup, which will be at Whistling Straits, of which you will be a vice captain to U.S. captain Steve Stricker. That golf course, Whistling Straits, that's very European in design and the way, the way it plays. I know you played there. Does that concern you at all that it's going to kind of fit into their, their mode possibly?
2: I think one of the one of the biggest keys for any home captain and is golf course setup. Right, what, what are we looking for? What Davis did a great job at Hazeltine. I think he did a very good job at Medina. But uh, you know, I was an away captain. That was something that I didn't have to worry about. Um, but setting the golf course up and what do we want to see? You know, it was no secret at Hazeltine we had a, a pretty wide, long golf course, firm, fast greens, uh, stuff that we see a lot on the U.S. tour. And it also, you know, the guys on our team that, that pretty much fit the style uh, of our team, and so uh, that's one of the keys. When you look at when you look at Whistling Straits, it does appear, you know, it's a linksy style course, um, but it's a target. It's still a Pete Dye golf course. It's target oriented. It doesn't look like PPC. at sawgrass, um, <laughs> but it's a target oriented golf course, and it's still. I don't think. It appears to be lynxy, but it's American lynxy as well. And what I mean by that is we don't build a lot of golf courses where you can play the ball on the ground, uh, where you can roll the ball like you can at, a, at St. Andrews, where you can kind of roll the ball around the golf course. And maybe that's a bad suggestion because you've got to put the ball in the air a little at St. Andrews. But a Lynx golf course, when I think of the British Open, you can you can hit the ball five feet off the ground and get it around those courses. Uh, you can't do that at Whistling Straits. It's an aerial attack. You've got to put the ball in the air, both to hit fairways and to hit greens. And so it has uh, it has the look and maybe the feel of a, of a European linksy course, but I think it plays
1: it plays like an American golf course, in my opinion. I want to talk a little bit about your golf swing. So many players. Well, you've been named Player of the Year. You won the FedEx Cup back in 2010. As I said earlier, a Hall of Fame career. Most players with that resume have gone through quite a few swing changes. And I know, speaking for myself, I'm always searching, looking for that one key that's going to get me to that next win. And I've worked with different teachers, and now I've settled in on Jim Hardy, who I've used for, oh, God, Jim and I have been working together for 25, 30 years, and I do use video. But from day one, you have worked exclusively with your father, Mike, who is a golfing professional professional himself in Pennsylvania, but your swing is your swing. You work off of natural feels, and your dad never wanted to mess with that, did he? Uh, he really did. My dad was
2: smart enough to realize, you know, I think what, what I always, and people probably heard this a lot in interviews, I, I found fascinating is like a Harvey Penick, you know, teaching, can you imagine teaching Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite, um, <laughs> yeah, and the two yeah. different mindsets that go, you know, Ben is total feel, mm-hmm. and and Tom is a very mechanical player. And he was able to communicate with both players and, you know, teach them the game at an early age. And I think that's uh that's kinda of fascinating. You know, I was more on the on the crenshaw side of things from a feel perspective and my dad realized that when I was young and and he kinda of taught me, you know, we learned to communicate together and, and what worked and what didn't and he taught me through more of that feel and In ball ball flights and, you know, guys out there, you know, most amateurs slice the ball, right? And what do they want to do? They want to aim left because they're afraid they're going to slice it. And the farther you keep aiming left, the more you keep slicing it. You know, the shorter you hit it, the more, you know. And that would make me, I'd come home and say, I'm hitting a low slice. And he'd say, great, go out tomorrow, grab a couple bags of balls. I want you to hit two bags of high draws. And of course, you know, the first bag was awful if you're hitting a low low slice and you're trying to hit high draws. But, you know, you work on that for a few days and you get that high draw going. All of a sudden, you can hit the ball straight again. And so um, we just kind of worked through shot shapes and feels. And, and we really worked hard on my fundamentals as far as, you know, address position, my posture, my ball position, my alignment. And I still, I mean, I still have the same bad habits I had when I was 15. You know, I like to aim left. I like to get the ball too far back in my stance. I, You know, it's the same stuff we worked on as a junior, same stuff we worked on in college. And, and now, like, I get all tangled up and messed up. My dad watches me on the range, and, you know, he tells me the same stuff he was telling me when I was 20. And I always think, how could I be that stupid? Like, why can't I figure that out sometimes? <laughs> and I do, but it makes you mad when you don't. And, and uh, you know, he tells me the same things.
1: Well, in working with Jim Hardy, and you don't know this, but I study your golf swing, and so does Jim, uh, when I first, played with you way back when you were a kid. I used to say to Jim, wow, uh, uh, Jim Kurek has got such an upright golf swing, and Jim pointed out to me that you may be a little bit upright in your back swing, but you you put the golf club so beautifully behind you that coming into the golf ball, you're coming from such a beautiful inside position. Uh, I think that really tends to make you the consistent player you are because you've got such a simple release. At the ball, and, and I know those are your fields, but I credit your dad, Mike, for putting you in those positions.
2: I think, um,
1: as a parent, right, you and I, and you
2: want to see your kids succeed and be happy, I think he probably felt a ton of pressure when I was younger. You know, folks won't walk up to a 15 or 16 year old and tell them that their swing's goofy or it's not going to work, but he definitely had folks that pulled him aside and said, What in the heck are you doing? You know, what are you teaching this kid? And, how can you let him go through with that swing? I mean, I know he can play now, but you don't think that's ever going to last and and so you know his idea was that what what comes natural is repeatable, and when you need to repeat it under pressure, if it's natural it's going to be a lot easier to do so and and so again, we worked on some some basic fundamentals, and you know i i don't I think as I've gotten a lot older now, I've started to kind of settle in and I understand my swing a lot better. Kind of what makes it tick. When I was, you know, when we first met, and I was in my mid, mid to late 20s, I don't think I quite understood my swing as well, and and what made it work as well. But uh, you know, that comes with time, and and it's. I, I've seen some videos here, actually. Some folks sent some birthday videos out. There's there's so uh, there's one out there with me swinging like in the, you know, 90s, and then it's got early 2000s, and then 2010, and you know, it's definitely changed and evolved uh some over time and and uh but it's my it's my fingerprint it's my thumbprint uh, on everything and and
1: uh and that's why it's repeatable <laughs> Faraday said something funny one time I thought it was hilarious he said your swing you described your swing as an octopus falling out of a tree and uh, which I thought was cute but um I think you're going to have the last laugh when you're inducted into the hall of fame sometime in the future maybe you should ask Faraday to induct you. Wouldn't that be kind of a funny little little (laughs) twist? When when
2: doesn't, when doesn't David say something funny? That's that's pretty, uh,
1: you know, it can deliver sad news in a funny way. What's, what's impressive to me. And again, maybe because in my career, I've, I've had, uh, I've had longevity, but I've also had my share of injuries. And whenever you get injured, you've got to fight back. You've got two choices. You can either come back or you can quit. And, your first win on tour was in 1995 in Las Vegas, and your last win, at least at this point, was 2015. That's 20 years between wins. Now, that's, that's longevity. And then after the Open in 2003, the U.S. Open, which you won, you tore cartilage in your wrist in 2004, and, and, and you had to have surgery, and you dropped out of the top 100 in the world. But you recovered both times. You won in 2005. Then you won twice in '06 and again in '07. I remember talking to you and Fluff during that time about your injury because obviously, uh, I've known you forever. I'm a huge fan of yours, personally and professionally. I've always always keep my eye on you and Fluff. To be honest, were you scared? Were you thinking this may be it for me, or did you think you had a chance to come back and win again? In '03, I was
2: terrified. Um, You know, I won the U.S. Open one, I think two, two or three times that year, two times that year had my best year ever to that point. and And, uh, and then towards the end of that year, my wrist was really bothering me like at the British open and, and, uh, I could hardly play by, by the end of the season and, and, uh, eventually had surgery in early 04. And yeah, I was, I was kind of terrified. I felt like I had just got to kind of the peak of my career and I was right in the meat of, uh, you know, my early thirties when, when you really feel like you're going to make a lot of hay in this game. And, and, uh, yeah I, uh, yeah, I started thinking about it. What would I do if I couldn't play the game anymore? What, what am I going to do for a career? Uh, absolutely, I was uh, I, I was I was scared for for a lot of it. And you know, looking back, I it's kind of humorous because the surgery was still pretty simple, and I recovered fine. And the doc that I used uh, is still a friend today. He, he did both my wrist surgeries, and he he kind of hit it right on the nail. He said, "I'm going to have you playing golf in three months. You're going to feel like you're 100% in six months." But quite honestly it's gonna take nine before you're you're back to normal. And he hit it right on. I was playing the US Open in three at six months. I said, You know what? This guy's crazy. I feel <laughs> I feel good now. I'm strong, I feel great. And then at nine months I went, Yeah, I wasn't quite there, but uh I feel good now and and uh I had uh so O four was tough, you know, I didn't didn't play great through that year. Um I was trying to squeeze you know I was gonna play like whatever it was, fifteen events but I was trying to squeeze in uh you know, make it feel like twenty eight and you know, just it was more of a sprint than the marathon. And and so I came out in uh, 05 really with kind of a new lease on life and a lot of passion and a lot of fire. And, and you kind of know how in your career, you know, there's times where it's not that you're not working hard and trying hard, but, uh, you know, you, you get stale, right? And you need kind of a kick in the rear end or, or something like an injury or, you know, some moment in your life that gets you fired up again. And, and I came out in 05 kind of really wanted, wanting to show that, I had lost a step in, in 05. I played great. And then 06 was kind of one of my, my best years ever. I think I was ranked number two in the world for for uh, over 12 months, kind of somewhere in that that period of time. And we, I guess I was ranked number two, but it felt like number 80 because Tiger was so far ahead of everyone else at that moment. Um, you know, he was tripling and quadrupling everyone else in world ranking points. But uh, I, I had so much uh, passion at that time. And and fire to compete and to, and to try to win that, uh you know, I, it was it was a lot of fun. You've been here before, you know
1: what to do, keep your head on straight, don't let them get to you, put a smile on your face, get rid of that frown.
0: I'm a sports nut, and if you're anything like me, the first thing you do every morning is grab your phone and check to see what may have happened overnight in the world of sports. But Mondays are for golf. Once the weekend is over and the golf tournaments around the world are complete, whether they're on the professional tours or in the amateur world, I know I'll find what I need on Global Golf Post. It comes to my email every Monday morning, delivering everything I need to know as I dissect what happened over that weekend. It also offers insight and analysis from experienced writers and contributors who are as committed to the game as I am. And it's pretty easy to sign up. Just log on to globalgolfpost.com and you're done. And for even more great content, you can subscribe to Global Golf Post Plus, which takes a deeper dive into the world of golf, exploring the people, places, and things that makes this game we love so intoxicating and with global golf post plus there's no advertising use the promo code jake's takes when you sign up to receive 30 percent off your monthly subscription to global golf post plus so remember globalgolfpost.com it's everything you're going to need to know about this game of golf it's a
1: interesting when guys come out on tour and you win one event or you win two events and you get really impressed with yourself uh, and then you get hurt and then people quit or they go away because they don't think they can come back but clearly you're a fighter because you've had surgery a couple of times you fought back you've shot 59 at at Conway Farms and then you shot 58 at the Travelers in Hartford you're the only player in PGA Tour history to shoot in the 50s twice and to me it I talk to a lot of amateurs and pro-ams, as you do, and they, they want to know how in the world they can shoot lower. And I don't know, Jim, it sure seems to me that when you were shooting those numbers, and I was at the broadcast at the 59 at Conway Farms, whenever you get going, you seem to have a calm inside you. You seem to almost, almost look like you're not really trying, even though I know inside it's just churning away. <laughs> but what, what's, where does that calm come from?
2: Well, I don't think I'm all that calm inside. Probably looks a little more calm on the outside than it really is. I think both those rounds happened later in my career at the age of 43 and 46 just because I was probably in a better spot mentally to uh, to do it, if that makes sense. you know, I wasn't probably as sharp as I was physically maybe a little earlier in my career when I was stronger and, and hitting the ball a little harder. But uh, mentally I was prepared, and, and I think – you know, breaking 60 is no different than trying to break 70 for the first time or trying to break 80 or trying to break 90. It just gets harder the lower that score goes. But you're still fighting the same mental battle, right? You're you're out there playing the golf course and, and competing with the course and competing with yourself. But, you know, thoughts creep in your head. You know, first time you ever, you know, when you were a kid, and you were trying to break 70, right? And you had it Three under with so many holes to play and, you know, you're right there at 69, you start thinking about making pars, right? You're trying, just trying to get in the house because that's the lowest score you're ever going to shoot. Well, it's really no different when you're trying to break 60, right? You got stuff that comes into your head and, and, and fighting mental battles. And I think, you know, in those rounds, I had, I had my dad's voice in my head. I had Tabitha's voice in my head. I had, uh, Doc Rotella's voice in my head. And, uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, Doc always says some things that, you know, you're human, you're going to make mistakes and when you do you kind of have to laugh them off or when you start going down the wrong road mentally you kind of, you have to catch yourself and you kind of have to laugh you have to forgive yourself because you're human but and in in both of those rounds i found myself you know you start thinking about the barrier start thinking about the number you're nervous um and uh you know just trying to really i, I remember in both of them saying the first time i was like I mean, how many chances in your life are you going to get to break 60? I mean, think about that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I was shocked I ever got one. And so I'm walking down the last hole thinking, man, enjoy this. It may never happen again. And you have an opportunity. And, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to birdie the last hole and shoot 59 and then got myself in the same position again three years later. So you kind of have to pinch yourself and enjoy it and, and, uh, and kind of go
1: along for the ride. You... Uh... You've won 70 tournaments on the PGA Tour. Your PGA Tour playoff record, I looked this up, is four and eight. Yeah, and I don't crazy. bring that up to yeah. – to, I know you wish it was eight and I appreciate but, you, Jake. <laughs> but the reason I brought it up is because I wanted you to talk through one of those wins you had at Harbortown in the RBC Heritage in a playoff with uh, English pro Brian Davis that, that ended quite abruptly and surprisingly – at the end and i think it, it 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 speaks a lot about not only in the integrity of the game but also a lot about brian davis can you tell us what happened there
2: it was an awkward moment um you know i had tab and the kids there and what i remember most is my boy just like he couldn't take it any longer because there was a long ruling with brian uh, left of the green and you know he just wanted to he wanted it to end and you know obviously wanted me to win but brian brian uh tugged the second shot left going at a pin he made birdie i think in regulation to go to the playoffs and then hit his iron shot left into the harbor and there was like a a bunch of debris had been kind of blown in and his ball was in there he he was going to have a swing at it but it was going to be difficult for him to get this ball you know close to the pin and on his backswing he didn't have his club grounded, but on his backswing he nicked uh like a twig or a stick that was in there and and made the swing and hit the ball. And, and then he said, you know, wait a second, I, I might've done something wrong here. So he called a rules official over and, and he told him what had happened. And honestly, Jake, I, at the time I thought he was fine. You know, it, he was making a swing and he hit this, this stick in the, in the marsh, but because it was dead wood, because it wasn't living, it wasn't growing. It's something that just kind of got swept in by the tide. It was kind of like a loose impediment. So it was, it was like grounding his club. And I think I'm telling the story correctly. Had that been, you know, a bush or something growing in there, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Because you can kind of yeah. set your club on the top of the grass and the hazard at the time. Um, I think all these rules now, I, I think with the change in the rules of everything, Brian would have been okay, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but, he would have. Uh, he would have. And, and so at the time, you know, he, he had to accept the penalty, and now I had a long putt, you know, and I knocked it maybe, I don't know, four or five feet by, and, and Brian looked like he was probably going to make you know, five anyway. And, and then with the penalty six, so uh, six or more. So I, you know, it all, it all worked out. I just, what I remember is my boy, it was just like, he couldn't take it any longer because the ruling took uh, a significant amount of time. And, you know, I'm sitting over a four footer. I don't know if I have to make it the win or if I two putt the win or, you know, I'm trying to keep my focus in that, you know, let's still focus on, let's think about we have to make this putt, you know, if something crazy happens, you have to make it. And, uh, you know, it all worked out in the long run.
1: Yeah, I think it was a cool story, uh, and as I said earlier, it tells you a lot about the game of golf, the integrity, the rules, and and a lot yes. about Brian told, Davis as well.
2: Tells you a lot about Brian as well, and yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess you, in one way, you kind of hate to win that way, but uh, you know, I'm, there's a lot worse to lose that way, I'm sure, yeah, which is absolutely uh, which is the bad part. Uh,
1: you're third in. The all-time career money list uh, on the PGA Tour, uh, behind just Tiger and Phil, uh, you uh, you just passed Bj. He's fourth. Dj is five, and Rory is eight, and they're coming fast. Uh, now, now you know how Nicholas feels when when uh, all these young kids came roaring past him uh, as the purses increased. Uh, did you know that Nicholas is 290th on the all time career money list? Did you know that? I
2: didn't know that.
1: I think I passed him like in my fifth year on tour,
2: and it was almost. An, I was embarrassed, to be honest with so, you.
1: But doesn't um, that tell you that it was, Nicholas it was is early. overrated? Doesn't that tell you he's overrated? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, probably not. Probably the 18 majors speak pretty loudly.
1: Well, it, And then it's the so hard 32 to, seconds in majors or something crazy <laughs> like that. So it's so hard to. When people ask, how do, you, how do you compare these errors in the game? You go back to the Hogan, Snead, Nelson, and then you jump to Nicholas Palmer player, then the Norman, Faldo, Seve, and then to now, Tiger, Phil, and you, Jim Furyk. It's, it's almost impossible, not, not just based on money, but, but also the technology in the game and the equipment in the game. It, it's impossible, so I, 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 try, I, never, it really I just avoid that answer.
2: It is. I guess the one thing I'd say I, I get asked a lot. I mean, all those players you named and in our era. I mean, VJ had had some dominant dominant years. I think he had over forty wins, which is which is incredible. Um, or maybe his wins are in the thirties. Phils had over forty wins. Tigers had over seventy, I believe. So those are amazing amazing numbers. Uh, you Ernie, uh, of course, had a great uh, great career as well. Um, we, we we had a really, I think. I had a cool group of guys to kind of compete against and play against. And, and that pushed me to get better and better every year. It was hard to, uh, hard to keep up. And, and it, it pushed me to, you know, cause a lot of folks will say, well, what if Tiger wasn't there? Think about how many more tournaments everyone else would have won. You know, all those guys I mentioned, how many more tournaments would they have won? And I, and I see the point, but you know what? He made everyone else better too, right? Cause we were always trying to find ways. Uh, yeah. he's so talented and he won so often and he was so dominant. He pushed us to get better as well. So you know i guess you look at those any of those players you mentioned would have been a great player in any era i mean you can put hogan anywhere you want uh, he had a drive and you know discipline to and he was going to succeed no matter what i think the difference in every every decade i feel like the depth the pool gets bigger if that makes sense you know you know, what what's so fun for me talking about my career is you know at 50 i competed in tournaments that jack Nicklaus played in right and win and and folks that are in their 70s now and i'm also playing with kids that are in their that are 22 Jeez. years yeah. old now yeah. and and competing you know so i feel like i'm bridging this you know four generation gap basically i used to say i was in the middle of it i'm probably on the back side of it right now but uh, it's still uh it's still fun and i but i just think you know you got so many kids that are coming out more prepared to not only compete but more prepared to win to dominate uh at younger ages and you didn't see that as much when you know nicholas did it and phil did it and you know the the tiger did it and the greatest players did but you you have a lot more in that talent pool now and you know very few guys got their cards or were you know i came out of college i think phil was the only one my age that, that just come right out of school and and play the PGA Tour, let alone win on the tour. And and now you see it so much more often, and it's it's still fun to play with them. And, and uh, the game's changing. It's evolving. Equipment's changing. It's evolving. And the best players kind of change with it, if that makes sense. But uh, it's it's fun to watch.
1: It's funny you said that about uh, playing with all these different uh, generations. In 95, Fluff and I got paired at the Open Championship in St. Andrews, with uh, Ernie Els and Tiger Woods, and we're walking down the first fairway and I'm thinking, "How in the heck is an old guy like me paired with these young studs tiger was a is, is was a teenager I think he was nineteen or maybe eighteen or twenty, and I think back in my career, Jim, and I played actually uh played with Sam Sneed and uh, had a chance to hit balls, do a clinic with Nelson, and then obviously on down the line to where we are today so it is fun when you think about the longevity of your career, how much fun it is to be able to to play with all these different players. And one player, before I let you go, I just want to talk a little bit about Payne Stewart and the Payne Stewart Award. You were awarded that uh, prestigious award back in 2016, which is voted on by your peers. And it talks to the player's commitment to charity, the character they exhibit, and the sportsmanship they show in the game and in their lives. And you and your wife, Tabitha, have been committed to your community and to charity through the Jim and Tabitha Furick Foundation. You've run your Pro-Am Furick and Friends concert and celebrity golf event uh, in Ponte Vedra. I've played in it multiple times. It is a, it, it's a wonderful giving back in your community. And now you have a new Champions Tour event, which is going to be next year on the PGA Tour Champions schedule. Just talk a little bit about that uh before I let you go,
2: yeah, I think um you know, that Payne Stewart award means a lot, just you know we all want to be successful on the golf course and and win golf tournaments and 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 that's you know we love competing, but to be recognized for something off the golf course uh was very humbling, and then uh I got to know pain. Definitely not as well as uh as you or some of the folks who are older than you, but I got to know Payne and Tracy early in my career and uh, had a lot of fun with them and was definitely the uh on the backside of a lot of needling, like everyone was if you hung around with Payne. So uh
1: but you, you know <laughs> to have
2: have that award and to spend the time with Tracy and, and uh is very humbling and I'm you know very proud proud of it. You know, I give a lot of credit to Tabitha. I mean, she runs our foundation. Um, she's the driving force. I think she makes me a better person as far as, uh, you know, she's, she's so caring and giving of her time and, and uh, her efforts uh, in our community. And, you know, we're, we're proud of what we've been able to accomplish with our foundation, the the event you mentioned. So, you know, we had our charity golf tournament and concert and party, and it was our biggest fundraiser. It's what allowed us to help our community. And, and we had so much support here in Jacksonville. And uh, when I was, getting close you know this is about a two-year in process you know we've been working on this champions uh, event for about two years and I knew I was getting closer to 50. I saw kind of Davis you know host the RSM up in Sea Island. Strick started to host his event in in Wisconsin when he was 49 and so I you know I was hoping for the opportunity and we had a lot of support from uh, from Jay Monahan and Miller Brady and and uh, so we're proud. I think it gives us an opportunity uh, to grow hopefully to raise uh, more money uh, for charity here in Jacksonville. And it gives us a chance to just showcase uh, our city a little bit, right? This the city of Jacksonville, yeah. the St. John's river. Um, we're proud of where we live and we've moved uh, you know, a couple of years ago. We moved uh, kind of closer into town. We live in, in Jacksonville now and a little community called San Marco and the golf course we're going to play is phenomenal. Tim Aquinas, uh across the river. I can, I can basically see the clubhouse from the house. So uh you know we're proud of our community and and uh, we've had so much support. But I think it just gives us an opportunity to raise more money and and help out more folks here in Northeast Florida. So I uh, appreciate you mention it. We've got a great yeah. sponsor. I always ask people what, uh, and I've asked you a number of times. You know what makes a great Champions tour event? What what makes a great PGA tour event? And the first thing everyone says right off the bat is a great sponsor. So uh, Constellation Energy has been a partner of mine for a number of years, and and they're our they're our title sponsor and. And I think you need a great golf course. We've got that in Timuquana. Uh, I think the, the guys on tour are going to love it. And, uh, and it's going to be a lot of hard work, right. From, uh, from our staff and, and, uh, and a lot of support from the community. So we're, we're excited about it. Well, I'll be 67
1: when the tournament rolls around next year. And hopefully I'll, I'll be in one piece and maybe I'll have a chance to come up and play. So uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to, you'll have to look out. You just going to have to watch out for me. i to be able to check my score you're going to have to turn the sheet upside down and start at the bottom. Uh there you go. Well, what, what, you know it's not a long golf course, Jake. It's you know,
2: it's it's yeah? it's uh it's more about placement.
1: Well, I, I I can't hit very far, but I can I can hit a straight. Hey, what's going to be your first event uh following this uh shutdown when we get back uh, back playing again?
2: I'm thinking Colonial. I mean, I really like the first the first three events out of the shoot. You, you got Colonial uh, and, and that golf course is phenomenal. Uh, the second one is, uh, the RBC heritage. I've been yeah, there been there. And, You know, I'm an RBC guy and, and, uh, that's my favorite event. I love the golf course. And then you've got travelers up at Hartford, you know, a place where I shot 58. So, uh, you know, I've got three good golf courses to start on. I'm trying to get my game in shape right now. I'm, I'm obviously very rusty. I think like everyone else, but, uh, I've got some time to get ready and, and, uh, I, I'm excited. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm kind of the tour just kind of sent out some plans uh, a couple nights ago, and just kind of an idea of of what maybe a, a day on tour will look like come June 8th. You know, I, I kind of want to just check and see where we are, and you know, and the world, and the country, and and how safe is it to to kind of get out there and go play. But um, I'm hoping to play those first three.
1: Hey, Jim, thanks for joining us. You're a, you're a one of a kind guy, unique guy. You touch all the bases that makes all of us. Uh, golf professional very proud and give uh, give my best to tabitha and your family and i look forward to seeing you on the road sometime soon i enjoyed it
0: jake thank you very much well that's all the time we have for this week's jake's takes podcast thanks for joining us i'm your host peter jacobson these have been my takes what are yours